children wait in the water. Gods are gonna trouble the water. See that band all dressed in white. Gods are gonna trouble the water. The leader looks like the Israelite. Gods are gonna trouble the water. Hello, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And uh, in this episode, I will um, be looking at Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave written by himself, first published in 1845. Uh, obviously, the, the most famous slave narrative, um, the one that most people read if they read just one of them, and, and the one you should read if you're just going to read one of these, these narratives. Although I, I really like Harry Jacobs for the themes that gets into and some of the, the, the like the Americana of that book. Um, but this is the, the, the archetypical slave narrative. It, it hits all the points, the moral argument, the, the what it's, it, it does better than most of the others we've looked at. I think more, most better than the ones coming up again, with the exception of maybe Harry Jacobs, uh, of saying just what is it feel like to be a slave? Um, it is uh, also clearly structured as propaganda to uh, encourage people to support the anti-slavery movement, and it and Douglas does a wonderful job, I think, of of of, of pruning his life story in order to to center in on that objective, that goal. Um, more, I think that again, more than than most of the other slave narratives. Uh, in that sense, I, I think Jacobs's narrative is is more sprawling and more autobiographical and less, I don't want to say contrived because that's not the right word, but less, uh, um, you know, focus, uh, like zeroed in on, you know, uh, you know, keenly eyeing in on uh, like one experience he's trying to have the reader, reader have. Um, now like Jacobs, uh, it's, it's weird to compare it to Jacobs before we get to Jacobs. It'll be a, f uh, a few weeks before we get to it. But both this and, and Jacobs are, are heavily about sex and sexuality, um, although it's, it's much more overt in Harry Jacobs. Douglas is, it's, it's um, I wouldn't say it's subtextual, but it's, you know, his experience as, as a man is different, but it's all over the story, right? Like, he, he does talk about the, like, he, his own father, of course, was a white man, and, and he deals with that. And then the descriptions of like the beating of female slaves is highly highly sexualized in in how he describes them you 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 sometimes can see the or see in your mind the the violence combined with sexual desire involved in like whipping of slaves it's it's really really brutal stuff it, it's kind of it makes me th it actually made me think this time of of the the is it the screw fly solution story that science fiction story about an alien invasion that basically unlocks or uh, a certain kind of gene in men you know the this just kind of twists the the male des sexual desire gene just a little bit to make it like about violence towards women 
Right, and the, the implication in that story is, is that like men's sexual desire for women is, is adjacent to violence, and so it's easy to kind of hijack and, and, and take advantage of. Um, so that's a big part of the story. Um, but I want to kind of go on here, start here with a quote, which I, which I think is the, the moral heart of this story. If, if you read it, and I think most of you have read this, um, so you know what I'm talking about, the longest chapter, and it comes towards the end of the book, um, the book's only 100 pages. His other autobiographies are, are longer, and uh, he wrote two before the Civil War and one after the Civil War. So um, um, My Life, My Bondage was written like a, like a decade after this, and it, it's a little more detailed and fleshed out. Um, and then I actually haven't read The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, which is the one he wrote after the war, but I think that, that set, fills up more of his life after the war and his pol political life in, in the period of the Civil War and after. Uh, but I got to read it. The uh, Library of America did publish a complete collection of, of these autobiographies, all three in one volume, which maybe I'll get to. Uh, I don't think I have it, though. Um, I got to get all my Library of America books together in one place, get a bigger apartment, buy the rest of the series. Uh, I'm, try I'm trying to get some extra work at work. Maybe I can afford to do it. It won't. It's not that. It, I mean, it's a big expense for, like, for, for most people, but I, I happen to have enough saved up. I could just buy the whole collection, um, especially if I ever get back to the U.S. and can make do with the used book market. It's amazing how, how cheap some of these are in like Amazon Marketplace. But that's an aside. Someday, someday, I'll, I'll have the whole collection. Um, anyways, here's the quote comes on page 331 of the Library of America version. It'd be like page, I don't know what your pagination of your version, but it's chapter 10, I think. There's 12 chapters. This battle with Mr. Covey was the turning point in my career as a slave. It rekindled the few existing embers of freedom and revised me within me a sense of my own manhood. It recalled the departed self-confidence and inspired me again with the determination to be free the gratification afforded by this triumph was the full compensation for whatever else might follow, even death itself. He can only understand the deep satisfaction with I experienced, who has himself repelled by the force of bloody arms of slavery. I felt as I never felt before. It was glorious resurrection from the tomb of slavery to the heaven of freedom. Unquote. When we dealt with, uh, last time, when we dealt with Nat Turner, um, I made the point that that Nat Turner thought he was free from the time he ran away. He came back to do his conspiracy, but in his perspective, he was he was free and and you know coming back to do work. Douglas similarly frees himself through this act of of, of resistance against this overseer, Mr. Covey. And in fact, we get the prelude to this whole narrative. This part of the narrative, anyways, is. Douglas descending into a kind of barbarism due to slavery. It's, slave, it, it's, it's really the nature of slavery turned him into a brute, into a beast of sorts, um, you know, like plantation labor. And part of that is the violence and abuse of Mr. Covey. And then he fights Mr. Covey and defeats him physically. This is an act of, of revolutionary, revolutionary violence, as, as I just quoted here. He says, this freed me from slavery. It's not him, you know, hopping a boat uh, that frees him. It's this. This is the moment where he becomes a free man. Um, 
Should we talk about his freedom? How he gets freedom? His freedom? It's actually several conveyances he used. It's 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 a pretty good story. He doesn't tell it here, and and I think the reason he doesn't tell it is because he knows he doesn't want to. He doesn't want you know readers in the South to know. Oh, this is how slaves are getting away. We got to stop that. So he he details this in later autobiographies, um, but um, obviously him working in the city in Baltimore. Um, awakened to the potential of getting his freedom and he meets uh, Anne Murray um, falls in love with her and and she was free so she also kind of helps him with the escape so he's aided by by this woman um, but anyways on September 3rd this is from Wikipedia on September 3rd 1838 Douglas successfully escaped by boarding a northbound train of the Philadelphia Wilmington and Baltimore Railroad in Baltimore the area where he boarded was thought to be a short distance east of the train depot um, so he took a train. Then Douglas reached Harve de Grace, Maryland, in the northeast corner of the state, along the southwest shore of the Susquehanna River, which flowed into the Chesapeake. Although this placed him only some 20 kilometers from the Maryland-Pennsylvania line, it was easier to continue by rail through Delaware, another slave state. Dressed in a sailor's uniform provided to him by Murray, who also gave him part of her savings, he carried identification papers and protection papers he had obtained from a black seaman. A black free seaman. He crossed the Susquehanna River by the railroad steam ferry uh, on the opposite shore. And then he took another train. Um, and then he went by steamboat along the Delaware River. It took only a day to do this. Um, but, you know, it had several legs in the journey. And he did sort of do this roundabout way. It wasn't, he didn't walk by land. He wasn't doing it that way. He was taking, he had like the, you know, fake papers. Uh, that, you know, and he was basically posing as, as, a, as a different person, and he went, just took the normal conveyances people could use to travel. Um, then he called Murray, and they, they went to New York together. So that is uh, essentially his story of freedom, of how he got his freedom. Um, but that's, or the freedom's already, like the point of the story, though, is the freedom's already been established. How he actually got there, first, yeah, he didn't want to expose it, in the 1840s how it was done exactly because you didn't want you know people to be watching more carefully to maybe cl close down that opportunity for other um, slaves but you know another reason he doesn't have to get into that is is this is his point of freedom it's this battle with Covey um, now obviously this is the great slave narrative of the antebellum period it's the most well known and one thing that's really powerful about it is its emphasis on exposing the myths of the Old South. Um, and, and I think that's why it's still taught, is because it, it does do a great job. Um, all the slave narratives do in their own way, but this one does it more directly of saying, like, the mythology of the South. All the lies of the pro-slavery arguments, which were still being spewed out at this point, after, especially after uh, Nat Turner's rebellion. You have these defenders of slavery saying slavery is good for masters, it's good for slaves, it's good for southern society, it's good for the economy, it's good for political stability, it's um, all these things. And he dismantles every one of these myths. So he's made, he makes much of the first part of the book actually is devoted to breaking down these uh, moral uh, defenses of slavery and, and attacking it on moral grounds. So his main concern is not really his life story, I think. It will be in other autobiographies, but here it's just showing the hypocrisy of the slave-owning South. 
Um, and using just his own life and his family, he's able to dismantle pretty much every one of the major myths. And he, he does remind you that, like, I was in Maryland where slavery was was horrible, but it was, you know, that's nothing compared to how slavery was, like, in the Cotton South. Um, so basically, to sum up here, the defenders of slavery said slavery was good for pretty much everyone. And he shows, no, it's actually, it's not just that it's not good for them. It's actually debased. And it makes savages of both slaves and masters. It corrupts the institutions of, of American society. And it creates divisions in society. And therefore, it actually is the reverse of all those things. It's not just that that's not true. It's actually the direct opposite of that. Uh, it's a corrupting, uh, evil institution. So the story also works as a coming-of-age story to a degree, because it really is, he's born in slavery, he gets educated, self-educated, of course, he gets help from people, but he's essentially self-educated. Um, and then his climax is this, uh, dis his dis debasement uh, in front of Mr. Covey's violent labor regimen and his resistance to that. And then his eventual escape for freedom is essentially an afterthought that's not even really mentioned here. So the original publication of the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass has two introductions. The first, uh, both by famous abolitionists. The first is William Lloyd Garrison, and the second is Wendell Phillips. They both uh, emphasize how significant this narrative is within a growing body of anti-slavery literature. They're both clearly both very, very impressed with um, Douglass. Now, so you may know about uh, Garrison's tensions with Douglas later in his life. They did have a bit of a falling out over issues like pacifism um, and and Douglas is like buying his freedom because um, we know he did send money to purchase his freedom from his master because they didn't want to be kidnapped. I mean, in the context of the Fugitive Slave Act, it makes sense to do that if you wanted to continue to operate as a free person, especially as a public figure. So that abolitionist like Garrison, who didn't want to have any compromise with slave owners, was uh, you know, a little upset with that decision. Again, referencing Wikipedia here, Douglas split with Garrison, who we found unwilling to support actions against American slavery. Uh, I think that's rooted to uh, his, um, his Puritanism, not, not, not the religious variant, but he was a Protestant um, of, that, of that tradition. Um, coming out of he's doing he's a new englander right yeah i keep looking stuff up I'm, um getting old forgetting this stuff yeah definitely a, a a new englander um but so earlier this is back to wikipedia earlier douglas had agreed with garrison's position that the constitution was pro-slavery because of the three-fifths clause um garrison burned copies of the constitution what's the problem with this well if any, like Lincoln was elected through the Constitution. I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's like Garrison made these, had these extreme moral positions like don't buy your freedom, like don't use violence, uh, use only Christian methods. Uh, and then if you disagree with the Constitution, how do you like pass laws to improve the lives of slaves or, or, or move towards freedom? Um, Douglas basically said, let's use the Constitution, which um, now, of course, in a way, Lincoln does use the Constitution. He uses his authority as president to do that. Um, but 
he also relies heavily, Lincoln's own anti-slavery thought was relied heavily on the Declaration of Independence. But with the Declaration of Independence on one hand, the Constitution is a much more libertarian document, right? Um, so I, I see both positions here, but obviously you have to work through the institutions around you, right? Um, so, and it made sense that he makes that change when he, you know, when the Republican Party rises and there's a possibility of having an anti-slavery politics um, in the United States. Um, but, but I think he was also upset about the buying his freedom and that stuff because that's like you're paying for yourself. You know, you're you're a free man. You don't have you shouldn't have to do that. But in reality, you have to do that. Um, of course, Douglas was a radical in many areas, supporting women's rights too. Uh, at the Seneca Falls Convention, he eventually uh, uh, supported John Brown. All this is an aside that in 1945, Garrison was still very much in the Douglas camp and, and, and really trying to promote Douglas's career as an abolitionist. Um, now, there weren't that many narratives by former slaves at this point. There would be many more, as we're going to see. Um, but um, they stress that Douglas lived in the part of the country known for milder form of slavery, whatever that means. Um, so it could only be worse. It's just basically in most slaves that actually have it worse than this. So as bad as this is, it's just scratching the surface of the horrors. Um, and they suggest that his experiences are reflective of the slave system itself. So Phillips writes, another major abolitionist, um, we know that the bitter drops which you have drained from the cup are no incidental aggravations, no individual ills, but such as must mingle always and necessarily in the lot of every slave. These are essential ingredients, not occasional results of the system. Um, so the introductions are, are worth reading on their own as just a abolitionist text, I think. So wonderful stuff throughout this narrative, though. In the opening chapters, Douglas uh, stresses, emphasizes, you know, most autobiographies begin, as you might expect, with birth, being born. Douglas is like, well, a slave doesn't know when he's born. Uh, I don't know my birthday. And most slaves don't. As he shows, not knowing his birthday was merely a part of his veil of ignorance put over enslaved men and women's, where parentage is even dubious, right? He knows who his mother is. His father, I mean, he does know who his father is, but many slaves wouldn't uh, be able to know who their father is, or at least they wouldn't have a father that's around. The father might be on another plantation, uh, not living with them, um, or, you know, some many slave women, enslaved women were victims of, of continual rape by by white people in power over them and so this fatherhood was always um you know more dubious than it was for for white people generally um at the time but um so there's this the birthday is just part of this veil of ignorance um much more crushing of course is douglas's inability to know his mother as his mother so even even though he knows who his mother is, she's not a mother in quite the same way it, because she's under the authority of the master. He has to be raised by other people in the community. Um, it's the same logic that made his birthday insignificant. Uh, it's, you don't, a, a slave doesn't need to know his birthday to work. A slave doesn't need to have a good relationship with his mother to work. 
a slave is just there to work and life is just about labor. So now all this other stuff, all these other accoutrements of life that we think are valuable, like knowing how old we are, or knowing who our parents are, or, you know, having any sorts of, of, of richer inner experiences and social relationships is incidental, right? They're only sustained to the degree it's, it's useful. Um, and, and this is the thesis of the books. I think it's called Born in Bondage that talks about um, uh, childhood and slavery and things like that. And this is a common theme in that book too, is this the difference between being a child as a slave than being a child as an adult because um, one's life has so much uh, more value uh, to the system than the other. Um, another thing in this first chapter that's interesting, of course, is the phenomenon of white fathers of slaves. Douglas's own father is called out here immediately. And the cruelty of overseers. Um, and here's where you first are like, this is there's kind of a sexual overtone here uh, in this. Is It's the beating and the torture, basically the torture, let's use that word, the, the torture of Aunt Hester, his Aunt Hester. Um, it's it's a it's a whipping scene where she's the top of her her clothes are ripped off. She's beat. The language is of of sexual violence uh, through the whipping. Um, whites fathering slaves and the sadistic torture of Hester together expose one of the major myths of the old South, and that it was a, that it was a land of chivalrous sexual virtue, of of kind of feudal uh, values. No, no, no. It's just violence and rape is is integral to everything in this in this system he says he he suggests pretty strongly here i mean it's, it, the suggestion is too too weak a word he's basically saying this is the way it is this is uh reality here then we get a few chapters following douglas's childhood and the workings of farm life and he he had many masters throughout his 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 life um and he you know maryland was a place that were there was still slavery, of course, but it wasn't the, the center of plantation slavery. Uh, the economy had moved away from tobacco, and uh, farms were more diverse in what they produced. They didn't, often didn't use many slaves. That's why you have the phenomenon of, of selling slaves down the river. Uh, Douglas, for a while, was sold off to work in cities. So um, all that gave him a little bit more mobility, um, and there's a lot of turnover among masters and overseers in his life. Um, so he was passed around a few times before he escaped slavery. And that's another myth. I, I don't know if he's explicit about this, but one of the myths of the slaveholding class was that paternalism is true. Like the slaves are children of us. Uh, loyalty is exchanged for loyalty. And that's shattered here too. There's a no loyalty. There's just the, 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 like the, the price tag. There's just the value that you can extract. And if you can't extract them because your farm doesn't need that labor, well, someone else will find that value. The labor market is fluid. Um, and I guess, yeah, that not that another part of it, like like another defense of slavery, where they will always say, oh, um, in books like Canada, like all, a lot of the pro-slavery arguments would say, you, you think we treat the slaves so bad, look how you treat the workers, you fire them if you don't need them anymore. Well, 
Douglas was passed around many times. The market in slavery is just as fluid and liquid as it is in free labor markets. It's just the difference is who controls that mobility um, and, and who gets the some of their value back, right? At least the free worker gets their value back and, and, and can move and can quit and has some greater autonomy. Um, not to defend early capitalism either, but it's obviously preferable to being a slave. Um, we also learn in the early parts of the book how Douglas learned to read by interacting with local white kids. Uh, this is all interesting stuff. Um, we don't get all the details because this is such a tight, concise, it's really a pamphlet that's making a case. Um, but his interactions with these local white kids is interesting because they saw slavery as inevitable, but actually like questioned it a little bit, just a bit by interacting with Douglas. Um, Douglas was able to interact with those white kids um, as a bit of a, as a person, right? Which I guess what's more like striking about this is like if, if that's possible, that, that relationship is possible, like you spend time with a slave, interact with them without like a financial benefit, right, to it, you see them as, you can see them as a human being. But as soon as it's about the profit, they get, they get uh, um, victimized. They're, 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 they're treated as property. They, well, they are property, right? But they're treated so uh, violently by, by the masters. Well, who spends most time with them? It's the masters spend a lot of time with their, these slaves. So uh, why doesn't that happen? Um, I, you know, I think it's just something I, I, I want to think about. Do we make too much of this idea that one can, through interacting, knowing someone, change their their values or the values sort of stuck or are they just products of the material conditions that they live in and the reason these white boys could sort of see douglas as a, as a bit of a human being is because they didn't really profit from him the ma different material conditions you're going to get that same um you, you're going to get that you're going to get slavery right? uh, and you're going to get that perpetual day-to-day -day violence against um the, the, these people that, that, that they owned. I don't know, you see what I'm saying? I, I'm, I'm just, Douglas talks about this and he doesn't go too far with it, but it's, it's just something to think about. Um, you know, most non-slaveholding Southerners were on board with slavery and supported it. You know, during the Civil War, most of those people put on the Confederate uniform weren't just fighting for country, uh, as lost causers like to say, they were fighting to defend slavery even those that didn't own slaves. All right, let's, uh, let's talk about the climax of the story a bit more. Um, it's an encounter with a young man. Um, or no, he's, I'm not sure his age now. I don't know. A man, a white man, Mr. Cubby. Um, he, uh, hired Douglas from his master. So again, just like he was working in cities, this was a pretty common practice was if you, you know, of hiring out slaves to work. So he's not really an overseer, although he certainly had, like has the continence and behavior of, of one of the overseers. And, you know, for a while I, I was thinking, well, Mr. Covey was an overseer, right? But um, 
I don't know why I thought that. Maybe because he just fits that prototype so much. But he's definitely a poor white. But he did manage to save. An, this is really weird. He saved up enough money to purchase one slave for breeding. This poor white who can has to save up to buy a slave. Now, how much is a slave in those days? Um, it's, it's about the price of a new car nowadays. So you can imagine how long it takes to save up for that kind of thing. Um, and I don't think Covey's the kind of guy who gets credit. So he wants this bad, right? And he wants this slave for breeding purposes, like a sex slave, essentially. He doesn't, Douglas is very clear here, he doesn't have the intellectual training in the ideology of slaveholding like some of the more wealthy masters. Um, but he's not also corrupted by this hypocrisy of, of this idea of the conscientious master. He doesn't, there's nothing to mitigate his brutality. I mean, he's just, he's totally based from the beginning, right? Because, and, and I think there's a, I think he can't read. I, I, I don't think he reads, but Douglas can at this point. Um, so there's that aspect of it. I mean, there's a class dimension here that's, I think Douglas is trying to get at here. Um, it's probably drawn from life, but um, the way I sort of read this is like, while other masters at least had to justify, justify to themselves or to the nation what they were doing. That's why you have all these pro-slavery defenses and they all fall apart here. But Mr. Covey doesn't care about any of that. Mr. Covey just wants to apply power and, and use it. Um, and he uses this power excessively on Douglas, extensively. Uh, he lies, um, uses force and violence. Um, and this, of course, leads to Douglas finally um, defeating Covey in a really brutal fight. It, it's, it's one of the most brutal fights you can read about in, in American literature. It goes on for a very long time. And through this, he gains his independence of, of a sort. Not fully independence, but internally, he, he feels different after this. And Covey can't whip him anymore. He's achieved a gain. I mean, he, there, Covey is restrained in how he's dealing with Douglas. Like, Covey doesn't really interact the same way with Douglas. So it is meaningful. This victory is won. And, and that's how you got to deal with the, with the Nazis, right? Is, is beat him up. That's um, that's why, you know, Reconstruction should have been more brutal um, from the north on the south, right? Teach him that lesson twice if it takes, if if that's what it takes. This is obviously not. This is not an example of nonviolence. So Garrison, who is a nonviolent person, still likes this narrative, but I don't think he's reading it quite the same way that Douglas intends. I think Douglas is saying violent resistance. Doesn't always work, but there are moments when the when power is so devastating to body and soul that that violence is is the way to achieve freedom, right? Um, and that's the that's the heart of the of the narrative. Again, it's the longest chapter. It's just like like a third of the book. It's just like this one chapter almost. Um, now we get a little bit about how he gets his freedom in the last chapter. No details, really. He's protecting people who helped him, he's, and he wants to ensure that other slaves can use that method. Um, 
he actually mentions here that there's like a lack of security culture among abolitionists. There's uh, abolitionists are a little gossipy about the Underground Railroad, which again is like he wants to free slaves. He wants slavery to end by any means necessary, uh, violence or constitutional or finance or whatever, whatever it takes. Uh, he supported the Civil War. He supported um, Lincoln's policies, although he was, of course, pushing Lincoln. Uh, he eventually supported what Lincoln was doing. He supported John Brown, right? He supported broader women's rights agenda um, because, you know, many of the people at Seneca Falls were anti-slavery too. And he put them um, as equals, which many white abolitionists did not do. Um, many white abolitionists did not treat female abolitionists equally with themselves. But Douglas, who knows what that feels like, being um, a black man in the abolitionist movement, it's, it was the same thing with the Freedom Summer. If you've read about the Freedom Summer campaign, uh, there's a wonderful book about that. And, you know, many men saw women in Freedom Summer as like uh, sexual playthings during this, this summer of, of activism um, and didn't listen to the opinions or take them as seriously. It, it's not surprising that after these is after the, the abolitionist movement, you get a feminist movement made up of many people who are part of that uh, abolitionist movement, um, like Susan B. Anthony, those kinds of people. Um, and then you have like women involved in the civil rights movement later on becoming feminists because we're like, yeah, there's it's not just one issue. It's, it's like a, it's intersectionalism is being described here, right? Uh, which, of course, is is why identity politics are are valuable, right? Um, because it's how we become politicized. It's how we become radicalized. We all get have our different paths to radicalism. We all experience power differently based on our identity and our relationship with power. Anyways. Finally, we have an appendix where Douglas attacks the application of Christianity in the South. He does say he has some admiration for Christianity on principle, but it's really, really like... He's spitting it out through his teeth here. Um, but largely, he says, religion in the South is hypocritical. Quote, we have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields the bloody clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. Revivals of religion and revivals in the slave trade go hand in hand together. The slave prison and the church stand near each other. The clanking of fetters and rattling of chains in the prison and the pious psalm and solemn prayer in the church may be heard at the same time. End quote. And the other slave narratives we read here all have Christianity as like a big part of the arc of the, of the slave. Now, Douglas does talk about Christianity and he is a Christian and, and at least nominally, at least he says he is in this, in this text. But this is, again, I'm wondering what Garrison really thought of this. He's probably just saying, yeah, those Southerners, they're not real Christians. So it makes sense. But there's a broader critique here of, of the hypocrisy of religion in general, um, which, which I think, again, I think this is Garrison and Douglas maybe reading this differently. Um, or maybe not. I don't know. Um, now, Douglas points out almost every page of this book, of this pamphlet, of this, of this story of his life, about power. Power transforms those in authority into monsters. 
Those under the whip are brooded, are turned into brutes. The whippers, the ones with the whip, are brutes. Um, when Covey and Douglas fight, it's two monsters fighting each other. Right? Douglas comes out of that not a monster as, as the victor. He could arise a man. And Doug Covey stays a monster. But, but slavery just makes everyone monstrous, is the point. Monstrous and cruel and... and and yeah, less like less than human to a certain degree. Um, the reason terror was necessary to defeat this was the power regimen was actually um, well. The reason terror was necessary. What am I trying to say? Um, the reason terror was necessary for the slaveholders by the masters was that they're actually quite weak and and horrible people. They're just thugs. It's kind of like a when you actually read about like the SS and they have their uniforms and their their organization, their institutions, and their flags, and their structure, right, um, and all their rules, you know, when you actually read about these people and their and their life stories, they're just petty little men. A lot of them missed the war and were raised on stories of World War One and and wanted to kind of LARP that and then kind of fumbled their way into power and then fumbled their way into into genocide. Um, they, they're just just kind of incompetent brutes that were able to like, like, just use terror to make up for their, their lacking in every other area of their life, and then, and, yeah, that's my point. Um, power that's this weak and this unjustified can only survive by turning those involved into monsters, self-conscious, actual human beings cannot abide this this kind of system, right? At least that's Douglas's point. Um, but I guess that's it. It's a it's really a wonderful book. You, you, if you haven't read it yet, please, please do. Um, Douglas is just an amazing writer. It is probably the best of these slave narratives. Um, I don't know. I really like... Uh, some of the others too. Um, they're interesting in their own ways, but none of them quite have this power and and moral seriousness, I guess. Or um, they're not as complete. All the other slave narratives do good things and are interesting and and and, and are relevant, but this one, like, is kind of its full the full package. It, 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 and and it's the best I think at really attacking the ideology of of the slaveholding class. So anyways, that's it for now. Um, next one is, well, William Wells Brown, but we did that. We did William Wells Brown. We, we, I had a whole series on him a couple years ago. So Henry Bibb is next, uh, 1849. Um, and I kind of forgot what's in this one. Uh, let me see what the blurb says about Henry Bibb. Henry Bibb strengthened the abolitionist cause by exposing the hypocrisies as inherent in the slaveholding societies, ostensibly dedicated to liberty and Christian morality. Well, that's what I just said about Douglas. Oh, he, they, they say Douglas, Brown, and Bibb all do this. All right. That's good. Looking forward to it. So next episode will be Henry Bibb um, and his narrative. So anyways, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, I had a good time talking to you about Frederick Douglass. Um, share your thoughts um, with with me, and, and and I'll see you next time.
all dressed in red. Gods are gonna trouble the water. Ooh, it looks like the band that Moses led. Gods are gonna trouble the water. Oh, 